Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Inspire his for prayer as we begin this morning. Father, we've been singing about your birth. We heard the beautiful reading and the lighting of the candle. And I'm so grateful that you have brought light into the darkness of our world. And Lord, then we've been singing about your birth, and we've been thinking about the majesty and the wonder of your coming. Lord, we're so grateful as your children. We're so thankful that we get to be called the children of the light. And I pray, Lord God, today that you will help us to recognize that this is a world that needs Jesus. The people in our community, the people where we work, the people in our family, our friends, at the school where we attend, Lord, they need Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be the light, a reflection of the light of Jesus to everyone around us. Today, Lord, as we focus on this character, Joseph, in the Christmas story, help us to be reminded of what it must have been like for him as he experienced the news that his betrothed Mary was with child. And then, Lord, help us to draw some very important lessons, very practical applications that can be made to all of our lives today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In this series of Christmas messages, I've been trying to humanize the characters of the Christmas story. Not that I have to do that, but sometimes we forget the emotions that they probably endured, that they probably experienced when this story was unfolding. Last week we talked about Mary and the things that would have overwhelmed her and how much of the Christmas story is an overwhelming story. And we learned three very simple truths. And that was that we're to stop, we're to look, and we're to listen. We're to stop the madness, we're to look to help others, and we're to listen for God's voice because he's speaking. Well, today we move to the second character, and that is Joseph. In Matthew chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, you read the story of this incredible man who was a godly man and a righteous man. Everything the Scripture tells us about him is that he is that kind of a man, and yet you don't find him frequently on the pages of your Bible. You find him here in the beginning stages of the life of Jesus, but you don't find him much after that. And yet this man was so central 
to the unfolding story of the birth of the Christ child. Have you ever stopped to think about this man, Joseph, who was excited about his upcoming marriage? He was, as I said, betrothed to Mary. That was not the same as engagement here. It was much more legally binding to get out of a betrothal required a divorce writing. But they had not come together yet as husband and wife. The marriage ceremony had not yet taken place. And so consequently, he's in this waiting period for the wedding to occur and for he and Mary to finally be, as we think of it, husband and wife. While he's waiting on that, that moment, that moment in time, he learns this incredibly difficult to understand news. And that news is that his betrothed Mary is with child. Imagine for a moment, you don't have a Bible in front of you. You're Joseph. You don't have a Bible in front of you that explains everything that's been going on in the background. You know that the prophecies are that a Messiah is coming, but you don't know that you're going to be the stepfather to this Messiah or that your Mary is going to be the vehicle through which God brings this Messiah into the world. You know none of that. And yet one day you learn the news that just rocks your world. And that news is that Mary is with child. Can you imagine the kinds of emotions that he must have been feeling in those moments of his life as he first hears this news and he begins to try to process it in his mind? You understand that probably there were friends who believed that this was Joseph's child, that, that he and Mary had been intimate with one another prior to the official wedding day. And there were those that were looking at him in disdain and with disrespect because he had violated the, the law of God himself. But Joseph knows this is not my child. There's no mistaking it. Joseph knows this is not my child. And yet here is this woman I love, and here is this woman who's going to be my wife, and we're going to spend our lives together. Here is this woman that I had all of the future planned out of what we were planning to do, what we were thinking about doing. Can you imagine for a moment, no matter how he felt as the people around him accused him of being the father of the child, imagine how he must have felt knowing that he was not the father of this child. Dr. David Jeremiah is a pastor that I reference occasionally. Uh, he's an internationally known author and pastor. Uh, he has a television program entitled Turning Point. I encourage you to watch him if you get an opportunity to do so. But they released a resource related to the Christmas story called Why the Nativity. It's free. You can go to YouTube and just type in Why the Nativity, put David Jeremiah with it or Turning Point with it. It'll bring it up. It's about an hour and 20-minute uh, narration of the Christmas story, not just a narration. It is actually dramatized as he is narrating the story. It's very moving. It's very well done. Think of the chosen. It's very well done in that same uh, line of understanding and same line of acting. I want to take you to a little clip of what is in that Why the Nativity video, Why the Nativity drama. And I want you to try to put yourself in Joseph's shoes for just a few moments 
you know that you are not the father of this child. And in spite of what everybody else is saying that you must be, you know you're not the father of this child. Can you imagine some of the emotions that he must have been feeling? I want you to watch this little clip and just try to put yourself there in that first century scene. We can imagine that Joseph, like Mary, would desire an orderly and ordinary life. Certainly, Joseph's life was proceeding in the right direction. He was in love and making all the preparations that needed to be made for his wedding to Mary. shock and disbelief, Joseph had observed the obvious pregnancy of his fiancée. Everyone would wrongly assume that Joseph was the father. The Bible tells us that Joseph was a just and honorable man. Now faced with a difficult decision. And though by law he had the right to put Mary away, he was righteous and was not willing to disgrace her publicly. Some friends agreed with his decision of compassion. While many most likely did not. experiencing. Do you know what happens to hurt? Hurt, if it's not dealt with, turns into anger. Anger, if it's not dealt with, turns into bitterness. And before you know it, not only have you destroyed your own life, you've destroyed the lives of all those that are around you. And while we know the rest of this story, we know that ultimately God will confirm to Joseph that Mary, in fact, is pregnant with a miraculous conception, a miraculous child. And he'll be able to resolve that hurt because the angel will reveal to him that fact and that truth of the Christmas story. The reality is that initially there must have been incredible pain in his heart. I want you to think with me for a few moments, if you will, about yourself. This Christmas you're hurting. And have you ever noticed that celebrations, celebratory times have a way of enhancing pain. They have a way of bringing it to the surface and making it all the more difficult. You might be smiling and you might be going to the parties and you might be uh, having uh, the, you know, the laughter that everybody else is having, but deep down in your heart, there is a hurt that is so deep, it can't be resolved. It isn't going to be resolved by an angel visiting you 
And that hurt has turned into anger, and that anger is turning into bitterness, and the result is that at Christmas time, when you ought to be connecting with people and enjoying people and loving people and wanting to be with people, what you really want to do is strike out, hit back, bring harm to if possible, make them hurt like I hurt. And yet we know that certainly isn't the best way for us to live our lives. Well, you notice in chapter 1, verse 20, where it was read to us just a few minutes ago on the screens, will you just pay careful attention to these words? But while he thought about these things, can you feel it? He's turning it over in his mind again and again. What has happened? Why has this happened? What has Mary done? I can't believe it. We planned our lives together. How could she do this? Why would she do this? This isn't right. This isn't the Mary I know. I don't like it. I'm angry about it. Can you imagine? Hey, wait a minute. I'm dramatizing. I don't know all of the emotions that Joseph felt, but I know what it's like for me to get bad news. I know what it's like for some of you to get bad news, to be people who hurt because of something that somebody else has done to you, and then to be blamed in the process and to hold on to that hurt that turns into anger, that turns into bitterness. Will you turn with me for just a moment back to the book of Hebrews chapter 12? And when you look at verses 14 and 15 with me, and let me read them to you, and please highlight the words that I point out to you in this passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. It says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness. Can we stop there for a moment? In Hebrew culture, any poisonous plant was called a bitter plant. And there were bitter consequences of partaking of that plant. And he says to make sure that you don't let the grace of God, that you don't forget the grace of God and fall short of the grace of what God wants to do in your life and allow this root of bitterness to grow up It springs up, he says, and it causes trouble. That word is used two other times, both of them, or excuse me, one of them in the uh, Gospel of Luke and the other in the book of Acts. But in both occasions, on both occasions, it refers to someone who is demonically possessed, someone who is being tormented by the demons. And actually the word is translated tormented. He says this root of bitterness springing up causes torment. I don't believe it caused that for Joseph. I believe Joseph was confused. He was shocked. He might have been, I know he was hurt. He might have been angry initially, but that was all resolved by the visitation of the angel. But as I said a moment ago, an angel's not coming to resolve the hurt and the pain that you feel, and the holiday season only seems to amplify it in your life, and you think the best thing to do is to nurse it for yourself, and the result is that you only 
trouble yourself. You only torment yourself. Actually, he goes on here in verse 15, and he says, and by this, not only does it trouble you, but by this, many become defiled. Many are destroyed as a result. Sometimes it's your own family. Obviously, it's your own self. Sometimes it's friendships. It's often the joy of life. It's the peace that you could have. It's the thrill of just being alive and being able to have the life that God intends for you to have. Somehow that root of bitterness, that hurt, that turned into anger, that began to trouble you and torment you so that you became the person who was angry, that turned into bitterness, and now you're filled with this revenge. I want vengeance on that person. I want that person to pay. I want that person to pay. I understand. Joseph didn't get that far with the emotions that he had. But are you human? Was Joseph human? If Joseph had not had the visitation of the angel, do you not think he would have wrestled with some of those same emotions that you and I wrestle with when we are hurt? Wouldn't it have been possible for a root of bitterness to have grown up in him as a righteous man, as a godly man, as an honorable man? Nevertheless, even amongst some of the best people I know, they hold on to the hurt from the past, and the result is they're destroying the present and the future. And the life of Joseph teaches us that all of us go through those kinds of moments But then we have to ask ourselves, how do we deal with those moments? Last week I told you about learning how to drive a bus. And there were three practical things that I was taught when you come to a railroad track. You have to stop, you have to look, and you have to listen. In a similar way of just trying to communicate wisdom to you at the Christmas season, hopefully it's going to be the greatest gift you're ever going to be given if you'll just hear me out for the next few minutes, that there's another way for us to think about this matter of forgiveness and unforgiveness and hurt and bitterness and anger and the things that torment us and that cause us to live in a destructive way that not only destroys us but destroys others And that is to think about if you happen to find yourself caught on fire. You remember when you were a kid, one of the things they taught us as kids was if you ever find your clothes on fire, for whatever the reason, some accidental reason, you find yourself and your clothes are on fire, they said there's three things you need to do. If you're driving a bus and you're going across the railroad tracks, you got to stop, look, and listen. But if you ever find yourself and your clothes are on fire and you're burning from a fire, you know what they tell you to do? They tell you to stop, drop, and roll. You say, you've already got the three main points. (laughs) What do I do when I'm on fire with bitterness? When I'm on fire with unforgiveness, when I'm on fire with anger, when I'm on fire with, with hurt, When I'm on fire, what do I do with this? Obviously, Joseph could have felt some of those emotions, but he got an angel. Am I going to get an angel to stop and explain to me what's going on here and try to help me to 
reason it out? Am I going to get an angel? And the answer to that is no, unless I'm your angel today. And I guess in one sense of the word, I am an angel because I'm a messenger of God. No, you're going to have to learn what the scripture says when you find yourself on fire because not only will it burn you up, it'll ultimately destroy things around you if you don't allow yourself to understand how to forgive. I tell you that as you think about this with me that the hurt that we feel in life has different intensities. The longer you have been hurt, the closer the person is to you who has hurt you. All of that affects the intensity of the hurt that you feel. And this is not a matter of a light switch. I've had people at times say, well, I know I need to forgive that person, but I just can't. And it's like they think in their minds there's a light switch. If I can just turn it off, it'll all go away and everything will even out and life will get better if I can just turn it off. It's not a moment in time. It's a process that you work through where you stop and you drop and you roll. Think with me for a moment. We've got to stop. We've got to stop rehearsing the offense over and over. We rehearse the offense in the back of our minds. It's not always in the front of our minds. It's not as if we're always telling everybody else about it, though sometimes we bring it up and we talk to other people about it. But the reality is that we're thinking about it even when we're not really thinking about it. It's turning over and over and it's churning deep within us. And we're rehearsing the offense again and again and again. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Because I've been hurt before, too. And I can think of those moments that I laid awake on my bed at night thinking to myself, if this ever happens again, I'm going to say this. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to handle it differently than I've handled it before. And we're thinking deep within ourselves through the day, oh, if I get the opportunity, I know what I'm going to say next time. I know how I'm going to deal with this next time. And we're rehearsing it again and again. And do you understand, that's like pouring gasoline onto a fire that only makes it worse. It doesn't make it better. Actually, what you have to do is you have to do exactly what the Scripture says to do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, he says, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We have to bring every thought into obedience to the captivity of Christ. We can't allow our minds to wonder and to rehearse all of those painful hurts. Many of them will take, they're not a switch in time. It's a process you work through. It'll take time to work through them, but you can't allow yourself to rehearse it over and over and over and over again. I'm old enough to remember the days when you had eight-track players in your car. I say in your car, I didn't own a car when I was a teenager. I had to use my parents' car if I was able to use a car. But they had a car, one particular car, that had an eight-track player. Now, those of you that live in this world today, all of us who live in this world today, we got all the latest technology. If you want to listen to a song over and over and over, you want to listen to a playlist over and over and over, you just push the button that says loop. 
You just push the button that you know, says to keep playing it again and again. You just tap that little button. But that wasn't always the way it was. You remember when you had record players and they put the record on and you put the needle on the record and the record would play and it would move the arm and the needle would move to the middle of the record. And when it got there, it would keep playing and you had to pick it up and move it back. Remember those days? Or remember the cassette tape days when you'd get to the end of the cassette tape and you'd have to pop it out and you'd have to turn it over and you'd have to put it back in so you could play the other side of the tape? An 8-track came along. Have you ever seen an 8-track tape? I think we have a picture of it. It's a continuous loop of tape. You never have to take it out. You just push it in. And it just plays and plays. One of my favorite ones was by B.J. Thomas. I know. It's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. I'm a different generation. You plug it in, and it just played, and it played. Any of you know B.J. Thomas? Know who he is? Yeah, okay. There's a few of you that are as old as I am. Plays and plays and plays and plays and plays and plays. That's what hurt will do to you. It's like an eight-track tape that's just continuous play. It just goes over and over. You go to sleep thinking about it. You get up in the morning thinking about it. You go through the day while you're doing your work. It's always in the back of your mind. And the Scripture says we've got to stop rehearsing the offense. We've got to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We, we have to do what Philippians 4, 8 says. He says, think on these things, things that are true, things that are noble, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are good, things that are virtuous, and things that are praiseworthy. And we have to reprogram our mind to stop thinking in rehearsing again and again the pain that we feel. And we have to put a new tape in, a tape that'll bring glory to God, a tape that'll keep playing in our minds, that'll cause us to think about the things that we ought to be thinking about. Consider this with me for a moment. Has an omniscient God ever forgotten anything? You can't be omniscient and forget something. But do you know what the Bible says about God, when it comes to our own sins, it says that he doesn't remember them against us. Amen. Isn't that incredible? Does that mean that God has forgotten those things? You say, Pastor, I can never forget those things. Does it mean that God has forgotten those things? No, the omniscient God never forgets anything. But I'll tell you what, the omniscient God chooses not to use those things against us and bring them up to us. Who is the one who brings up our offenses over and over and over and over and over? He is called the accuser of the brethren. Do you know his name? His name is Satan. He's the one who wants the tape to keep playing in your mind again and again and again and again. He is the one. We have to stop rehearsing the offense. You say, Pastor, I can't do that as, easy, as easily as it sounds. I understand. Don't you wish God would send you an angel like you sent to, to Joseph and the angel would just say, it's going to be okay. Here's what's going to happen. This is what's coming next. Just do what you know is right to do. God isn't coming to you with an angel of that, so, of that sort. God's coming to you and saying, I'm going to help you. 
if you'll just stop rehearsing the offense. Every time somebody sits down with you, don't bring it up. Every time you're with your family, don't talk about it. Every time you go to work and somebody talks about their offense, don't bring up your offense and and keep repeating it over and over and over again. Choose to change the tape and ask God to help you. It isn't a switch. It isn't going to happen immediately and instantaneously like a light switch does, but progressively over a period of time, you begin to recognize that you don't have to think about this all the time. It's not something that has to play over and over in your head again and again so that you don't remember it, and here's the word, against them. I'm going to remember this against you in the process. Do you know who the one's on fire? Who is the one on fire in that circumstance? You're wanting the other person to burn up, but who is the one that's being burned up? It's you. You're the one who's burning up in the process of rehearsing it, and you're pouring gas on the fire every single time you rehearse it. Stop. Stop rehearsing the offense. Number two, drop the push for vengeance. I know. When I have been hurt at times, probably nothing as serious as you've been hurt, but when I've been hurt at times, I thought to myself, Lord, just would you get them? And Lord, if you're not going to get them, would you let me get them? Lord, I'd really like to level the, 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 the field here. I'd really like to give them a piece of my mind. I'd really like to say what I'd like to say. I'd really like to use the words that I know Christians shouldn't be using, but I'm thinking them, though I'm not using them. And all the while, you're rehearsing the offense, and in the process, it only causes the push for vengeance to get greater and greater, such that the second bit of wisdom for you is to drop the push for vengeance. I want to take you to a couple of passages. Romans chapter 12, if you will. Romans chapter 12, and listen to what God says about vengeance. Beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 12, he's quoting here from an Old Testament passage. But I want you to hear it here in the New Testament, then I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament. Verse 18, he says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And the fact of the matter is not everybody will let us live peaceably with them, right? They are antagonizers. Verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Who's going to take care of it? The Lord is, in his time, in his way. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. If And for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Oh, I love that phrase, coals of fire. That's exactly what I've been wanting, fire. There it is. Stop, drop, and roll. I'm on fire, man. I want the fire to drop on him or on her. Yeah, let's do this. You realize that there's another understanding of that altogether? In those days, if you wanted to stay warm, you had to have a fire. But if your coals went out... You had to go to a neighbor and get hot coals from a neighbor 
And you'd put those hot coals on a pan and you'd often put them on your head and they would be smoldering and the smoke would be rising. You saw that here a few minutes ago. That isn't real smoke, by the way. Smoke would be rising. It would be rising as you carried it home. And there's a sense of shame. There's a sense of danger as you're carrying those hot coals because you're being reminded, even though what you've done to your neighbor, your neighbor has been good to you to give you those hot coals. And that's one of the pictures that's given here in this passage. In other words, by doing good to them, it brings to those people their own recognition, their own recognition of the wrong. It's not the vengeance that's going to cause them to see their need of repentance. It's when you respond differently than in a way of vengeance. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? That doesn't match 21st century American society at all. At all. And yet that's exactly what God says is the way. If you want this person to change, it's not going to happen by you dropping coals of fire on their head. It's going to happen when you do something that is good in response to the evil that they have done to you. And the result is that it opens the door for God to begin to work in their hearts in ways that they never understood or recognized would, would be able to happen. And you didn't recognize that it would happen either because you thought the only way to level the field was to get even. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I want to take it one step further. I want you to look back to Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17. Every Bible I get, when I first get a new one and I start writing in a new one or highlighting in a new one, this is one of the passages I always go back and highlight. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17. This is what it says. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles lest the Lord see it and it displease him and he turn away his wrath from him think about that for a moment when our enemy falls or our enemy stumbles, if we start rejoicing in the fact that they've fallen and they've stumbled, we've stopped doing good to them, and God turns his wrath away from them. Do you get what he's saying? This is not about you getting even through God. I'm going to use you, Lord, to get even with these people. This is about you coming to a place where you can truly forgive the individual who has wronged you so that you don't have to keep on rehearsing it and you can let go of the vengeance that you feel toward an individual. Don't you think that's what's happening a lot in our world today? Anthony Polito, a 67-year-old professor, just a few days ago walked into a UNLV building with a gun a handgun. And he killed three people and he injured another one. He had applied for a teaching job there in 2020, but he wasn't hired. And stop and think about it for a moment. He's rehearsing those kinds of things over and over. It wasn't the first time he was rejected. 
He's replaying it over and over in his mind. I want vengeance. I want vengeance. I want vengeance. This isn't fair. I hear that word so often, don't you? This isn't fair. This isn't right. It shouldn't be this way until finally it explodes into violence. And violence is never God's way of doing something, at least not violence from our perspective toward another individual. It is never God's way of doing something. We stop rehearsing the offense. We drop the push for vengeance. But thirdly, we roll our burden onto the Lord. We roll our burden onto the Lord. Go with me back to 1 Peter chapter 5 for a moment. You say, this is too simple, Pastor. I know. I understand in the halls of academia, they want what God promises to us to be as difficult as is possible. And yet God says, I'll help you if you'll stop, drop, and roll. What are we going to roll? We're going to roll this burden. We're going to roll this pain. We're going to roll this hurt over onto the Lord, and we're going to leave it there. And we may have to come back and leave it there again and the next day again until finally we're not thinking about it every day. And finally we're moving past that desire for vengeance and that pain because you're on fire. You're not only destroying yourself, you're destroying the people around you. You are being tormented by your unforgiveness. And maybe the greatest Christmas gift you could give to yourself is to forgive those who have wronged you. Think about it. First Peter chapter 5, notice it. Verse 6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And everybody says, well, how do you humble yourself? How do you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Well, the answer is in the very next verse. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. The word, uh, the word casting is the word to roll upon. You roll it upon the Lord. You roll it over onto God, and you let God take care of it. He is the only one who is just. Our motives can never be completely pure. And we roll it over onto God, and we say, Lord, I need your help to forgive. I need your help with this hurt. I need your help with this pain. And Lord, anything that needs to be done to address this matter with the persons who are the offenders in this matter, Lord, I leave it to you to handle. And you roll it over onto the Lord. Now, you say, Pastor, you're 66 years of age. You should be giving a lot better outlines than this. Stop, look, and listen. Stop, drop, and roll. I mean, what's coming next? Just wait and see. <laughs> Just wait and see. We've got to stop replaying the offense over and over, talking about it, repeating it to anybody who will listen. We've got to drop the push for vengeance against that person so that we feel that we've gotten even and we've got to roll this burden over on to the Lord and trust God to do what is right. One of my favorite stories, and I'm going to read it to you here and we're going to be finished. 
is the story of Corey Ten Boom, the little lady in Holland. I don't know if you take God posts, but Mary and I take uh, God posts. And many years ago, this is not recently, she's now deceased and in heaven. She wrote in God posts about her experience following uh, the Nazi occupation there of, of Holland, Poland. She and her family would take Jews into their house and they would hide them. There's an entire movie called The Hiding Place that talks about what her family did to protect Jews, but in the process, they got caught up and taken away to the concentration camp. I want you to hear her write these words. I'm going to read them to you. And I want you to be thinking, what are our three words? Stop, drop, and roll. I want you to listen to these, those three words. I want you to think of those three words as you listen to me read her story. This is her story in her hand, in her words. If you don't hear the word stop, drop, and roll, listen to it. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown belt, a brown felt hatch, a hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947. And I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I liked to think that that's what, where forgiveness or forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe there were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were, Betsy. And I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hard, take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him in the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. 
You mentioned Ravenbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I want to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? I could not have been many seconds. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew. The message that God forgives is a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you don't forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. And still I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that, too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Remember our words, stop, drop, and roll. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole body or my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart, I cried. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say it. I recall the time some 15 years ago when some Christian friends whom I loved and trusted did something which hurt me. You would have thought that having forgiven the Nazi guard, this would have been child's play. It wasn't. For weeks I seethed inside Stop. For weeks I seethed inside, but at last I asked God again to work his miracle in me. And again it happened. First the cold-blooded decision, then the flood of joy and peace. I had forgiven my friends. I was restored to my father. Then, then why was I suddenly awake in the middle of the night, hashing over the whole affair again? My friends, I thought, people I loved, if... I had been a stranger. I wouldn't have minded it so. I sat up and switched on the light. Father, I thought it was all forgiven. Please help me to do it. But the next night I woke up again. They talked so sweetly too. Never a hint of what they were planning, Father. I cried and alarmed. Help me. His help came in the form of a kindly Lutheran pastor to whom I confessed my failure after two sleepless weeks. Up in that church tower, 
He said, nothing nodding, he said, nothing out of, out, uh, he said, nodding out the window. Up in that church tower, he said, nodding out the window is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the, after the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong, slower and slower until there's a final dong and it stops. I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive someone, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the ding-dongs of the old bells slowing down. And so it proved to be. There were a few more midnight reverberations, a couple of dings when the subject came up in my conversation. But the force which was my willingness in the matter, had gone out of them. They came less and less often, and at last stopped altogether. Now, wait a minute. Are you, are you still with me? And so I discovered another secret of forgiveness, that we can trust God, rolling them over onto him, not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts. And still he had more to teach me, even in this single episode Because many years later, in 1970, an American with whom I had shared the ding-dong principle came to visit me in Holland and met the people involved. Aren't those the friends who let you down? He asked as they left my apartment. Yes, I said a little smugly. You can see it's all forgiven. By you, yes, he said, but what about them? Have they accepted your forgiveness? They say there's nothing to forgive. They deny it ever happened, but I can prove it. I went eagerly to my desk. I have it in black and white. I saved all their letters, and I can show you where. Corey, my friend, slipped his arm through mine and gently closed the drawer. Aren't you the one whose sins are at the bottom of the sea? And are the sins of your friends etched in black and white? For an astonishing moment, I could not find my voice. Lord Jesus, I whispered at last, who who takes all my sins away, forgive me for preserving all these years the evidence against others. Give me grace to burn all the blacks and whites, that's the paper she wrote on, as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to your glory. I did not go to sleep that night until I had gone through my desk and pulled out those letters curling now with age, and fed them all into my little coal-burning grate as the flames leaped and glowed. So did my heart. I don't know all that Joseph must have felt in those moments, and certainly what he felt didn't get to the degree that I'm describing to you this morning, but you can begin to feel some of the hurt that Joseph must have felt, and you have been hurt, and you're holding on to it, and everything about the Christmas season just seems to exacerbate the problem. It just seems to cause the pain to be that much more. And it's not the other person that's going to burn. It's you that's in fire. And you've got to stop. You've got to drop. And you've got to roll. And then you can celebrate Christmas with peace and with joy and with love and with contentment and you won't be troubling yourself or tormenting yourself 
And you won't be destroying others in the process of holding on to that bitterness.